Hey guys, welcome to Content Candy's new, new show. It's kind of an old show. It's uh, Cinema Bias with myself, Video Drew, and Alex Mack. Please enjoy. Check us out wherever you can find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, what have you. Like and rate and leave a review. That's like a thing you can do on podcasts. And make sure to also check out patreon.com backslash video drew to find out ways that you can support this channel, which is growing. Okay, end of thing. It's just me today. It's just me today. Not sure if you guys can, you can probably hear me. It's just me today, guys. Hi, welcome to another episode of Cinema Bias. I am one of your co-hosts. Uh, I almost said Alex Mack, but I'm not that one. I'm the other one. I'm Video Drew. Um, and Alex is out today. So we're going to be doing the show without her, which is unfortunate. Plus side, Adam Collins is here again. And I just got to do another show with Adam because another co-host was sick. And so it's actually shaping up to be a pretty awesome week. Um, yeah, we're just going to play the credits now, I guess. That's what happens. Again, this is Cinema Bias. Hold on, I tweet this out real quick. Uh, live right now. Have my shit together. Uh, perfect. Um, yeah, this is usually the part of the show where me and Alex tell you what it's about, but how about we just have me do that? So this is Cinema Bias, a show where me and my co-host Alex Mack usually talk about uh, movies that one or the other one has not seen and sort of force each other to explore sort of our inherent biases for against certain kinds of film, sort of force each other out of our comfort zone. It's actually a lot more fun than that, but not making it sound. But uh, at any rate, we have a very special guest joining us tonight. I feel like he's got a new residency here on like the Video Drew channel, but let, let's welcome him. It is, it is Adam Collins. Hey. I am back and I am ready to discuss another film, um, which will probably lead to us discussing many more films. And hopefully I'll find a way to shoehorn in a Crispin Glover anecdote, which I didn't get to the other night. Oh, yeah. I was thinking, I was like, we never got to the Crispin Glover part. This is great. We can just pick up where we left off uh, two days ago when we were doing Live in the Dark, uh, just with Stephen King quotes and talking about this movie, Jim Jarmusch's <laughs> Down by Law, which is the movie that you picked for uh, us to watch this week, which I did in fact do it <laughs> i was really excited about this suggestion and i was yeah. torn about which jarmish film uh and jarmish and jarmush are both i'm good with both i i will be saying jarmish because I, I i'm used to jarmish. saying it but but jarmush is also correct as far as i understand i mean so it's i grew like, up in a house that said jarmush but then again my parents say kinu reeves and like refuse to change that so like they just they just pronounce words weird i think i just picked that up from them jarmish? well some people yeah, some people say like Werner or Werner Herzog, so it's right. a similar situation. It's like the witch versus the witch, and I just say that guy from The Mandalorian. 
But um, yeah. So this is kind of like the part where we talk about why, what, like, what, what got you into Jarmusch? What was like your first? What was your bias towards Jarmusch, rather? Well, um, uh, I'll let me grab this uh, just because okay. I happen to have it with me. Exciting. I got my white, got my whiteboard with me. Never leave, never leave awesome. home without it. I love so it. So I got, I got our, our mutual friend there. Nice, right? love but it. But not too far away is the man himself, Jim Jarmish, oh. who we're discussing tonight. Mm -hmm. Who would probably hate that I have a sticker of him on my board. Yeah, but to be fair, Nessie, you could just tell him it's Tom Waits. Uh, yes, and he'd be fine with it. It is amazing um, to me that he's that they found each other. Those two. I know. Um, it was meant to be. Um, but yeah, Jarmish, uh, you know, I, I had a similar uh, uh, trajectory with him that I had with Lynch, but uh, my entry point was Dead Man, which um, was tempting to be my choice for this episode. But I feel like Dead Man is the first Jarmish film a lot of people have heard about because Johnny Depp's in it. Mm -hmm. A lot of big actors are in it. It's developed a bit of a cult following. Um, and Down by Law is one that's a like known once you start paying attention to his filmography and um you know if you went to film school you've heard about it most likely but like it's not a film that comes up a lot in casual conversation and i yeah, felt like i've it never heard someone like casually throw around jim jarmusch's down by law in fact i think my issue was i thought this was stranger than paradise which is what i was talking about my parents favorite film being this is not that one that's not this is not the road trip movie this was his follow-up to Stranger Than Paradise, but they make a great coupling, not just because of uh, John Lurie being in both of them, but they're mm -hmm. similar in tone, similar in presentation. Um, but Down by Law is decidedly, uh, you know, not just in a, a prison escape film, but also very, very uh, um, uh, much Jarmusch's uh, uh, dabbling with film noir in a lot of ways. I mean, it's it's really crazy. This, this kind of has like a multiple genre thing. When we were talking on... Uh, Sunday night about like movies that could become indie movies if we got the right director and you said the F9 would be a good Jim Jarmusch movie. I feel like this is what it would look like but with cars. Like this is this is like yeah, the heist movie, this is like the prison escape movie. This is like his big action one and it's still very like just like really meditative. That's kind of what I was thinking when I recommended uh, uh, him uh, for the director of a new installment in the Fast series because I'm thinking of this and you have uh, three very dynamic stars. Um, John Lurie is not someone that a lot of people would know by name, but once you dig into his career, he's a very diversified actor and artist. Um, something I can't recommend enough that ended up becoming a Criterion released film that was originally released as a series of shorts is called Fishing with John, uh, which is um, a series of vignettes that in which John Lurie himself goes fishing with Tom Waits, Jim Jarmish, and a few other people. Uh, Dennis Hopper is another one. I think it's oh Dennis God. Hopper. His Dennis energy is so different than the rest yeah. of theirs. I guess Tom Waits can, I bet Tom Waits and Dennis Hopper could like vibe, but I can't, that, that the rest of that crew, I feel like, just be like, oh, that's that guy's intense. Well, he just goes out on a boat with them, Drew, and just has <laughs> simple conversations. And it's it, it was released as this sort of, you know, um, uh, half-baked series that they released on public access in, in the 80s and 90s, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and then they ended up putting it together as a film, and uh, it's excellent. Uh, it's on the Criterion channel, but John Lurie and Tom Waits are both in that, so it's connected. 
Uh, when we uh, when we eventually do something together, Adam, I do want there to be a drinking game for the audience where every time you say something's on the Criterion channel, everyone has to take a shot. Okay. That I got to be, be careful. Good. Okay. Okay. I understand. No, I, I kind of, I'm saying this because I think I feel bad that that's the one channel I don't have. And that if I did have, I would probably not watch as much as I should. But uh, I'm like, oh yeah, the, that's the one thing I don't, I've never subscribed to Criterion. I have Paramount Plus so I can watch all like Legends of the Hidden Temple, but not Criterion. Uh, well, Criterion's great because you can switch it on and off. It's ten bucks a month, and when you're dialed into Criterion, you never run out of good shit to think to to see. It's 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 the best. It's the best of the best. Is it yeah. like it's, is it like a like is the app like accessible? Like I like I said the other day, like the Shutter has a great app. Like you can move that around yeah. and like figure out where you want to go with that. Um, you don't necessarily have a movie in mind. Criterion's great. The app works fantastic. Um, it's not on every single like uh, digital device. So depending on your gaming console, your your Fire Stick, your Amazon, whatever, uh, that you might might be luck of the draw. My fail safe is I just hardline my laptop into the TV when I have to. That's how I worked around HBO Max not being on Roku for like the first year. Um, but in any case, um, I, I think the thing that's great about Criterion is it knew it was picking up uh, the torch uh, from. Uh, Filmstruck, which I was very, very obsessed with during its run. And Criterion is actually great. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing that's fantastic is between HBO Max and Criterion, you basically have what was on Filmstruck still. Um, yeah. The thing to be cognizant of, though, is HBO Max has a ton of classic and uh, international cinema that's on Criterion, but Criterion has a good additional 50% on top of that. Um, so once you've caught up with what HBO Max has, that's when it's time, no doubt, to turn on Criterion because it has a bunch of other stuff. I think this meant now that we get too off topic as we just meander about this movie, much like a Jim Jarmusch movie itself. But I saw Bibiani's tweet the other day that like Mayor of Easttown got like is the thing that broke HBO Max over like Justice League or Kong versus Godzilla. He was like, that's just delicious. And I was I haven't seen Mayor of Easttown yet, but that seems very indicative of, you know, Sort of the, the two worlds of the programming strategy over there. I'm always slightly behind the curve. I just caught up with Invincible and I thought I was cool again. And now no. everyone's like, Mayor of East. I'm like, fine, fine. I've never seen one episode of it. I saw Evan Peters act drunk in a scene, but I, I haven't watched it. It doesn't seem like a show for Drew, but I'm sure. <laughs> you know, it, it seems like, you know, a, a dark procedural with uh, less supernatural stuff than I'm usually used to. But, um, yeah. but, but, Back to uh, Down by Law, I think one of the things that's interesting, at least from my perspective, the reason that I hadn't seen it yet is I find Jeremouche films very uh, polarizing. Like I, It's kind of like how I feel about uh, Coen Brothers. Like I love half of their shit, or maybe like 69%, 69% yeah. of their stuff I love. And then like the other small, like 31%, I just, I'm just, I can't stand for some reason. Mm -hmm. uh, and Jeremouche can be like that too. Like I can be like really polarized on this stuff. Dead Man might be one of my top, top 15 if not like top 10 favorite movies it's just fantastic uh i like his new takes on like the genre conventions like uh uh the dead don't die but i haven't seen only lovers left alive yet i like the idea of him doing horror but i've seen a couple others of his hit of his movies and i've just been like am i not getting something is it kind of like lynch pushing the broom or the character pushing the broom at the end of twin peaks the return I mean, th that's the thing about Jarvis. He's he's very slight and mm -hmm. and and frustratingly so for for some, uh, mm -hmm. which is why Dead Man or Ghost Dog are great entry points uh, because mm -hmm. they're a little they're a little bit more action oriented, a little bit more dynamic. They've got more uh, genre bending. 
Um, I think Down by Law is an ambitious entry point. Um, I think it should be the second film for, by default for anyone who sees Jarmish. Um, so but first the first one, Dead Man, this, then directly afterwards, you get a d double feature of Dead Man and then Down by Law. Dead Man Down by Law, I think, is the way to go. Um, yeah. But I think Ghost Dog is also a good one to keep in your back pocket if someone hasn't seen any of his films, because I think that's a movie people will watch and be like, wow, there's all these similarities to John Wick. And Forrest mm -hmm. Whitaker is such a cool character. And um, there's so much quirky humor in that, as you would expect from Jarmusch's films. But yeah, um, yeah I, I think I think like L The Limits of Control, which is a film most people haven't seen, um, which is a film... It. Yeah, he did. That was his follow-up to Broken Flowers, and it's it's what most people would argue is probably his worst. But I, I don't think it's a bad film by any stretch. It's just it's so quiet, even for his standards, um, uh, that uh, the pacing the pacing is a little laborious compared to some of his other movies. But I, I do I do think if you watch his old filmography, there's a pretty solid through line uh, with the consistency of dialogue and the editing and pacing and stuff like that. There is something there that I realized that like, I I don't think I noticed David Lynch did weird dialogue until pretty late in the game. Like I had to watch a lot of his movies before I realized, oh, like he, the, his characters talk in a very specific way, which isn't how I talk. I guess because my first movie was Mulholland Drive and that's the one where they talk the most like normal people, at least some of the characters do. Like, yeah. like Justin Theroux and stuff, they just talk like normal people and then the other people just seem weirder in, in Counterpoint. Uh, mm -hmm. But like, when I started looking at it, I was like, wait, the people in like in the Coen brother movies and the people in David Lynch movies all sort of talk the same way or they have the same sort of slow, almost like irreverent commentary on the stuff going on around them. Like they will just sort of pop in with nowhere like from nowhere with like these, you know, observations about life and existence or just say something in a very strange tone. And I feel like mm -hmm. Jarmusch. Jarmusch has a, a style of doing that, but it's very much more, to it's toned down. It's like not as stylized, but it is just, you know, characters in these strange situations living like the chillest life possible. Like in, in regards to what they're going through. <laughs> Always, he's so good at lingering, regardless mm -hmm. of what uh, genre he's tackling. And more recently, you know, he's been tackling horror, which is wonderful because uh, Only Lovers Left Alive and The Dead Don't Die are both really fun uh, genre films for horror fans. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think if you watch both, most would agree only Lovers Left Alive is better, but I, I think what The Dead Don't Die doesn't get enough credit for is it's, it's the first thing he's done a long time that was m more or less a straight up satire. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think people expect that from him and for him to be so direct and uh, about it I think threw a lot of people off with breaking the fourth wall. And I think dead don't die is something people uh, will get a lot more out of seeing two or three times. Um, yeah. But that's the case with a lot of his movies. Um, they, they all get better. Patterson, by the way, uh, oh, that's the Adam Driver one, right? That's the one I need yeah. to see. For some reason, yeah. I thought for the longest time I've seen ghost dog. I've like watched it and been like, this is a Jim Jarmusch film for the longest time. I thought the RZA did that entire movie. I know that I think he probably did the soundtrack or something, but I thought he, I thought the RZA would like produced it or directed it or something. I don't know why I thought that. He's uh, in it. He's in he's it. In he it. does. He does a, a lot of the music for it. And I think it ultimately, I mean, he's, he's uh, friends with Jarmish. They've, they've collaborated a few times over the years and they're mm -hmm. friends off camera. And um, I think it inspired the RZA to go on to do his own films working with Jarmish like that.
Now, not to tie it back around, but I do believe there is something that ties Jim Jarmusch to Stephen King, which is they're both in bands with people that look like them, right? <laughs> Jim Jarmusch and Tom Waits, and a, there's a couple of like other people that they're friends with, and they all look kind of alike. And then they call themselves like I don't know, maybe they're just a squad, maybe they're just a crew of something. But they're like it's it's his it's his like crew, and it's just people that look like him. And then Stephen King's in that band with like Dave Barry. And a couple other people like just look like Stephen King. <laughs> I, oh God, what I would give to see Stephen King's band. I'm working on it, but he's not currently touring. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that's awesome. Um, yeah, and and Jarvis keeps up his extracurriculars with the music uh, pretty consistently, and he's now starting. Uh, he scored Patterson and The Dead Don't Die, um, and both scores are terrific. Uh, so he's he's moved into full John Carpenter territory. I've found what it is. I'm so glad I remembered this. This is going to be something for you to like open a new tab on. It's called the Sons of Lee Marvin, and it's a it's a tongue in cheek secret society devoted yeah. to the like actor Lee Marvin, and it's only made up of people who look like Lee Marvin. Oh God, yes. Rouge, Tom Waits, John Laurie, uh, Richard Boss, Nick Cave. Uh, John Borman, uh, Thurston Moore, Iggy Pop, Josh Berlin, and Neil Young. Yeah, yeah. So um, there is a fraternity among them. I forgot the name of the band, so thank you for reminding me. That I, I don't think it is a band. I think it's just a secret club. Or the, the group, or the group, or yeah. whatever. Because I, I, um, because he's very close with Neil Young uh, and Tom Waits. I knew that. Nick Cave uh, doesn't surprise me, mm -hmm. um, but. The interviews I've read with Jarmish, he talks about, you know, people love to ask him, like, so what's it like looking like Lee Marvin? I have, like, no, I'm trying to think. I don't think I know what Lee, I don't think I know who Lee Marvin is or what he looks like. Um, so so terrible have you seen, uh, um, in the past decade, have you seen um, uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance or The Dirty Dozen? Let's say for the sake of argument, yes, but I've totally forgotten them. So, uh, I mean, he does look like Jarmish because he's got the gray hair, the, the, the pronounced eyebrows, the long face, the, the scowl. But he, um, he's, he's the head of the Dirty Dozen. He's the soldier who makes up the Dirty oh, Dozen. Yes. Okay. I remember. I remember who this is now. Yeah. And then he's Liberty Valance in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm like not the I'm not the hugest uh, Western Eastwood kind of person, but I do remember The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, if only because... What Jane Fonda is in that? No, is that uh, right? That that remember? one's um, uh, no, no Jane Fonda, but uh, James Stewart, uh, John Wayne, and Lee Marvin are the stars of it. Gotcha. Okay, thinking the wrong film. Um, so yeah, these are all the people that have are rumored or are in the secret fraternal society of the Sons of Lee Marvin, and I just think that's just like a fact I picked up in college, and I love it so much. Well, Jarmish has only the coolest friends. Um, I think I think we both know that. Like da he and David Lynch have that in common. And it's, um, it's weird yeah. they don't have like a thing. Like David Lynch and him. Like I, I guess that's what I'm circling around. Is like what is the what's the overlap there? Like it's it's like the David Foster Wallace thing about David Lynch is that he makes the mundane terrifying and the terrifying mundane. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Tim Jarmusch makes the like mundane like quirky and the quirky mundane or something like that. There's, there's sort of like an element that's the same and it's the sort of the roteness of it or the sort of maybe on the surface level, just sort of bleakness or blandness or, or some word that's not as negative as that, but like sort of a, a smooth sailing, like a soft, like a smooth surface 
mm-hmm. then underneath there's all this other stuff going on. I, 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 with those two, I, I'm surprised like there hasn't been a straight up collaboration of some kind because they have yeah. so many mutual friends. Oh, they have a sim- Tom Waits in a David Lynch movie. I would love, I would love to see that, but like they both worked with Crispin Glover, um, you know, right. um, they both worked with Willem Dafoe in some capacity, uh, okay. you know, um, but both over Nick Cave. They both worked with Nick Cave, right? Because I think Nick Cave has been on. No, has Nick Cave not been on a David Lynch soundtrack? Maybe not. I thought he did. Not sure. Not sure. I think I was thinking lost. They run in a lot of the same circles, and they came up around the same time too. So, but the thing I like about them is they're very different from each other, um, and uh, I like their films for different reasons. But what they both do is they they do such a good job of operating outside of of not just traditional cinema, but what we consider to be interesting or compelling dialogue or the things we choose to focus on in the abstract or the dream sequences, things like that. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they're just able to bring a perspective to things that I just didn't previously consider. And that's why I glommed onto both of them at a young age. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to surprise anybody in the audience to know. Oh, by the way, I forgot to say that like Streamlabs are open. So if you have a question for Adam or anything or for me, for some reason, feel free. Type it in, go to streamlabs.com backslash video drew or send in a super chat and it'll be read aloud. Um, but it, would it surprise you to know, Adam, that I have a hard time sitting through meditative films uh, unless I'm in a movie theater? I get very fidgety. <laughs> I, you know, I can appreciate that. Um, I think I mentioned the other night I, I saw A Quiet Place Part Two in the theater. It was my first movie to theater since being vaccinated. And it was a big deal for me because I was like, I can't hit pause. And this is so nice. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, it immersed me and I needed that. I missed that. Yeah. That's actually a good point. Yeah. When I saw Corella, there was like no break. Like I wasn't, I wasn't looking anywhere other than the screen for that whole runtime of not long enough. But uh, yeah, there's something different. I, I, re- I didn't realize how much I've been not absorbing of movie content. Like I will put a movie on, but it will literally be background noise as I like, grade Yu-Gi-Mon cards or whatever the heck I do all day. Uh, and I just like won't look up enough like to the screen and I will like miss large portions of the film. So for this movie, I, I tried, I did my best job to like just focus in and, and figure out what was going on in this movie. So that's actually gonna be interesting because now we're gonna put, this is what me and Alex do. We actually have me tell you the plot of this movie in 60 seconds or less. Okay. I think this is gonna be like an easier one than it usually is. Usually it's, it's Alex doing it, and for some reason, it takes like 40 minutes to get through like the setup of the first act. But this one should be easy enough. I kind of wish she was here to watch it or to, to do it because I think she would have nailed it. Um, let's see. I have a timer on my on my clock. If you don't have one in your end, uh, let me put it up. Okay. So, one minute and counting to tell the plot of Down by Law. Okay. So there are these three guys who are living in New Orleans and they are all kind of put in the same cell at prison. Well, it starts out like you, you see like the projection of one of these or the trajectory of one of these guys. He's like got, it's Tom Waits and uh, he has a car that he was supposed to drive from one location to another. He's now in the cell because it was like a stolen car or something. There's like a pimp. There's there's a, an Italian guy who's in charge for being charged for manslaughter that he didn't commit. And the three of them uh, get into like, or two of them get into a fight end up breaking out of prison and like going to the bayou um 
and then they get into like like another fight and then they find the cabin of another italian woman uh like nicoletta i think who fa immediately falls in love with the guy oh let's see how much time i have yeah who falls in love with the italian guy um and i think that italian guy decides he wants to stay in the forest and the other two go their separate ways because they don't like each other but they kind of like each other more than they did when they were fighting throughout the whole movie yeah that was easy that's i'd say that's 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 fairly accurate yeah, that was that's in a hundred percent. Did I miss anything? Did, I mean, of course, I missed the nuance of the film, but I think that's in, that's most of the plot, right? That was factual, absolutely. Okay, yeah, that that's benefit of the doubt. That would all count as one of the plot is down by law. I would love that to be a Schmodown question though. One day, is just describe the plot of a Jim Jarmusch movie and be like, "What movie is this?" And then, like, or technically, just, it could also be five other movies. <laughs> any questions about a Jim Jarmusch movie in the Schmodown would be excellent. Oh man, I. I, I realize though, if you say it vague enough, this movie sounds like it could be a ton of other films, uh, including like something like Cool Hand Luke. Like you frame you frame it a certain way, and this movie just sounds like a or like Shawshank or something, you know? Well, they're but, loosely. Uh, I mean, like Jarmish, like Lynch, cannot help but refer to cinema throughout his own movies constantly, and uh, he'll do that visually, he'll do that uh, referentially, but through dialogue directly as well. And and Roberto Benigni in this. Uh, uh, you know, uh, is, is vaguely referring to other prison escape movies um, uh, constantly. I thought I was going crazy. I was like, there's no way that is Roberto Benigni, even though I like knew in my, like my brain knew it was Roberto Benigni, but I was like, no, he wasn't famous. He wasn't a guy that acted until uh, it's uh, it's a wonderful, not it's a wonderful life. Uh, it's a beautiful life. What's life is beautiful. Life yeah. is beautiful. Until life, I thought he like wasn't an American actor. I did not. I mean, I put it together, but like my brain didn't like. My brain just told me it was wrong. Wrong information. This, that was Roberto Benigni. Okay. And uh, Jarmish, uh, in usual Jarmish form, you know, he just he he realized putting Benigni in an American film was a great idea before it was fashionable. You know, yeah. he uh, he realized the raw talent of that man and. And you, you have me sold on Roberto Benigni and Tom Waits just talking together. Yeah. Then you yeah, throw John really Lurie in there. Oh, man. It's just the dynamic between these characters is incredible. I mean, they, they all have, like, a certain mannerism. Like, Roberto Benigni's like, you know, the, the very happy, like, Italian. Like, he's, like, you know, he's, he's, he's sort of, like, the friendly one of the two of mm -hmm. them. John Lurie's, like, a lackadaisical pimp, I would say. Like, that's, that's his job, right? He's the... Yeah, he's a pimp with a heart of gold. He's like, you know, you're not. I'm not going to get you hooked on smack. I'm not yeah. going to let people hit you, you know. So he's convinced himself, you know, he's he's doing it right. He's doing um, it right, but like everyone doesn't respect his his crew doesn't respect him. No, much. no, his his ladies don't respect him. Um, uh, and and you know, uh, Tom Waits, uh, Zach. Okay, so let's 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 talk about that for a second. Uh, Tom Waits is Zach, and John Lurie is Jack. With the J, and yeah. I, and that's very much on purpose, but I love it, and and the way that plays into Benini's character, having English as a second language is yeah. reliably hilarious. It's the kind of thing where, again, if you're if you're not paying attention to this movie, it can just sort of wash over you, and you're like, you don't you don't catch it. You just think like somebody's saying the same name twice, but it, no, there's two guys who have very similar sounding names. It's sort of like a, it's like. Bob and Twin Peaks or something, or like there's two, there's Bobby and there's Bob and there's Mike and there's Mike and there's, you know, the, the sort of doubling that mm -hmm. happens there. Uh, hold on, let me, I have to let my dog out for a second. She is scratching at the door. 
I think that's fair. Oh, you were outside. You were outside. Okay, come on. Come here. Okay. I do appreciate but, the uh, meshes of the afternoon background is still there. I, I, I kind of love it. I think I'm just going to keep the meshes of the afternoon background. As you should. Yeah. Uh, so tell me, besides the main part of this movie, which is, the, you know, that, that incredibly in-depth synopsis, what are some of the nuances of the film? You mentioned the names as one of them, but like, what are some of the things that, uh, that just like tickle you about this film? Um, the thing I love about all of Jarmusch's movies, again, uh, the key word is linger. He's so good at just hovering on, on moments that other filmmakers would, you know, quickly move on from. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, um, I, I, I like whenever I'm watching his movies, I feel like I'm watching a shot continue that, you know, was, was, would have been cut in a previous film. Um, with this, uh, I love the opening with the Tom Waits song, uh, oh, Jockey, Jockey Full of Bourbon. Um, yeah. It's a great song. And if you turn the subtitles on, you can pay attention to the lyrics. You know, it's just a really good way of setting up the tone of the film. Uh, he shows you all these different aspects of New Orleans. Um, you know, uh, some of the less flattering aspects, some of the, some of the places that are, are, are more recognizable. Um, but he's so good at establishing space and he sets up New Orleans to feel like this identifiable, but pretty spread out space. So that by the time you get to the prison, you feel the isolation of these characters in that cell, but mm -hmm. their isolation isn't the cliche, you know, like existential crisis. It's just monotony. And the simplicity of getting through things day by day. And in I love way, the way their characters interact. Yeah, in that way it does kind of also remind me of like it's a very it's a very like intensely quarantine movie. Like I watched this and yeah. I was like, I should have seen this earlier in quarantine. Like this is this feels like the right uh the right space to watch it in. Like it is just about like the monotony, just the in, day in and day out. There's no eating egg oh, oh, oh hopefully that word didn't hurt anything. Hopefully there's no eating egg contest. Uh, luckily there's no eating egg contest in this movie, but like that's because they don't really do very much in jail. They just they just are there. They're just serving out their sentence until they decide not to. Right, and and the height of the excitement when they're in prison is the uh, the would be revolt when they start the chant of ice cream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream. And that's where this movie takes you. That's that's the that's the big like Rita Hayworth poster on the wall moment of this film uh you know is is a chant about ice cream it but you is gotta love it. i love that part because it reminds me of being in elementary school and <laughs> it, reminds it specifically me. reminds me of riding on the school bus and starting things with my buddy uh getting other kids on the bus riled up and then by the time the bus driver would like look in her rearview mirror and and see who was in trouble like causing everything you know like we would we were like completely serious while everyone else was acting up and to see these characters go back to their card game while everyone else is starting to scream the chant. Yeah. Uh, I just laugh out, uh, out loud at that every time. It reminds me a little bit of something, uh, uh, Vinnie Mancuso, who I worked with for many years over at the New York observer before he, you know, ended up joining the Schmodown and mm -hmm. all this stuff. Uh, his, his now fiance, but then girlfriend once said about me, uh, said to me about him, which is that, He's always the person listening to the loudest person in the room talking and smiling and nodding and then saying something under his breath, like commenting on the situation. 
And I always thought, like, that's a really good way to describe Vinny. Like, he's not, he's never going to be the loudest person in the room, but he always has an opinion about it. He's already got something to say, and he's just always kind of slyly there. And I could see, mm-hmm. I could see you being that kind of person too, Adam. It's a compliment, <laughs> by the way. I appreciate that. I mean, I, if you ask me my opinion, I'll give it to you, but it's not uh, going to come out unsolicited that often. Um, and uh, I, I, I pick up on that with Vinny, and um, I, I'm a big fan of his writing, so that doesn't surprise me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Very observant guy um, and a talented writer. Um, so I, 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 I love that about Jarmusch's characters, um, and I think – uh, the thing that it says about all three of these guys is they all estimate all underestimate each other's intelligence constantly yes. throughout the film, especially Bob Roberto Benini, uh, who they they interpret to be this this uh, gleeful idiot. But mm-hmm. he's it's just that English is a second language and that's established early on. And you don't and the I love that uh, Jarvis does not translate the Italian. No. No, that's, and I, and I don't actually know Italian, so I have no idea what he was saying. I, I picked up like you know, if you say prego, I can pick that up. Yeah, but, uh, not not the rest of it. I yeah, I, I have no idea what he's actually saying, but it's not important because uh, we're meant to interpret him from the perspective of these characters, you know, uh, typically. Um, but I, I I just I love the how they constantly underestimate him throughout the entire no. situation. Here's something that's interesting. And again, I'm just kind of messing around on the internet, but when I was, so when you type in down by law over at rottentomatoes.com, you get the, you know, for some reason, this is surprising, 87% critic score uh, and 94% audience score, which is, that is like the opposite of, I think, how Rotten Tomatoes is uh, thought of to work. Like the, the high-minded, highbrow, artsy films get so much more critical love and then none, none of the fans are a huge fan. Like, you know, that this the audience score is way down low, way down mm-hmm. in the hole, you might say. But uh, this one, the audience score is like like 10,000 people were like 94%. This might also be because, you know, it's an older movie. So it was before Rotten Tomatoes came out and, you know, they have to compile all the critics reviews of it. And there weren't that many people and there weren't people having blogs back then. But even as a retrospective, like uh, it's it's 87% feels like weirdly low. But I, I maybe like a couple people really hated this film. It just brought down the brought down the score. They they couldn't find the through line in his early films. So you had like Stranger Than Paradise. You had this uh, Mystery Train. After that, um, Night on Earth, which is basically an anthology film about different cab drivers around the world on the same night. Um, wow. And th- they're all great movies. But again, keyword is slight. They're very just quiet and thoughtful, and the complete opposite of preachy. And they're, yeah. they're not the kind of films that. Critics back then were immediately glomming on to, but now they're they're automatically all in the Criterion Collection and, you know, have all these commentaries from film critics around the world and everyone praises him now. But back then, you know, they, they were a little torn on some of his movies. Now, the two negative reviews, the two poll quotes of negative reviews, I mean, the green spot is negative, right? I'm pretty sure that's, mm-hmm. I work for Tomatoes, I should know that. So... I think one of them is referring to a different movie because it says, on the whole, I've had more fun in Cleveland, which is both a dig, but also isn't that a dig at like specifically Stranger Than Paradise, which takes yeah. place stand up in Cleveland? Stranger Than Paradise bops around between Florida and Ohio, but it ends up in Cleveland, yeah. Yeah, so that's weird. Mm-hmm. That's just like, a. I feel like that person was reviewing the wrong movie. And then the next one is even more baffling, which says, down by law seems on occasion to be soliciting our approval. 
what? Like, in what way? I'm just, <laughs> in what way is this film asking us to like, or like asking us to like it? <laughs> That's bizarre. Yeah, yeah. We're, I, I mean, I, I feel like from the get go, you're on this movie's wavelength. Um, I, yeah, I don't you really get it or you don't. Like, it's not, it's not going to like pander to you or make you, you know, it's not going to like talk down to you. It's a pretty straightforward movie too. At the same time, it's just the problem is, you know, uh, critics look at it and compare it to other prison escape movies. And they're like, "Where's the action? Where's the mm -hmm. suspense? Where's, where's the the murder? You know, mm -hmm. like like and the violence." And that's not what this movie's about. It's about, you know, the fact that prison actually, is, like a lot of things in life, is very mundane and and full of boring, quiet moments. And even escaping isn't that exciting once you're out. And the last negative review, apparently there was only four, but apparently there was only like 13 reviews of this movie in total. The last negative review is maybe the one that I find like this is the most, this is the only one that I think is any in any way relevant. It's from uh, Washington Post saying, it's not that the movie doesn't move fast enough. It's that when it, while it dawdles, it doesn't give you enough to dwell on. Which I feel like that could be a more fair argument than a guy not having fun in Cleveland or that movie, like the incorrect assessment that this movie is uh, asking for people to like it when it's most certainly just like, you know, you either get it or you don't, but it's not going to try to get you to like it. No, no. And um, I think I think after the first 30 minutes, you've made up your mind if this movie is watchable for you or not. But I think most people. Uh, even casual film fans could watch this and really find it enjoyable. I don't think it. I don't think it alienates its audience. It's just that back then, uh, I think black and white put a target on this film to begin with with certain critics, and they're like, mm -hmm. "Oh, it's black and white. It's trying to be an art film." It's like, no, it, it's it's just trying to 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 strip away, you know, the varnish and 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 give you, uh, you know, a very simple story about three guys. Uh, trying to make it work in prison it almost kind of reminds me in a way and this is a movie and this this is going to sound like a negative thing although i'm going to compare it to a very well regarded film just one i just happened to not find that accessible to me which is uh with nail and i there's mm. something about with nail and i i know i'm supposed to uh like love it like i love richard e grant i think it's like it's got um richard harris in it like it's got but i didn't realize it was the dad of jared harris until like someone told me recently and I was like, oh, that makes sense. That guy, they're related. And you um, think but, about the voices. You, actually, you're right. It's like Ralph Spall and uh, Riff Spall and Timothy Spall. Also, like, two people that I didn't realize was were related, and I listened to their voices. Um, but uh, it reminded me of with Nell and I in the sense that, yeah, it's just sort of like, it's just about, like, meditation almost. Like, it's just about letting these moments sit there and, like, you know, not nothing huge is going to be happening. You keep feeling like maybe something is a lot more with nail and I, cause the pressure just seems to be like screw tightening and the energy is way different. But I think there's, there's an argument to be made that there's, there's something about these films in particular that I feel like it, yeah, they just speak to who they speak to kind of like a racer head too. It speaks to who it speaks to, and it's not going to try to be any other way about it. Like this is going to be a movie that you either love or you're going to like, I don't think anyone's going to hate this movie. There's nothing to hate about it. Like maybe that's what the guy meant by it's soliciting our approval is it's very, it's, it's, it's not trying to be uh, offensive or aggressive. And for like a movie about prison, it's not taking a stance one way or another about the guys who run it. Uh, you know, it's not a, right. a anti-prison industrial complex film. It's just three dudes. Very much. And, and the thing too is 
Jarmish is um, uh, someone who, uh, like Lynch, uh, embraces the real life qualities of his performers and allows them to incorporate that into their characters a lot. So Tom Waits is very much Tom Waits in this movie. He's a DJ, but he's sitting out there. She just does great. Someone that I think it was the prosecutor. Somebody has this great line about him where she's like, "You can." She's like, "You're a great DJ." Like you're, I forget what the line was. It wasn't the beginning. It was, but it was hilariously funny. Just the idea that like Tom Waits is a DJ. Well, I think I think also um, if you look at this movie um, when it opens up in New Orleans like that, and and you have uh, these characters having all these different conversations, it's hard to ignore the similarities to a streetcar named Desire, especially with it being black and white. We really tell me, okay. Well, for me, I don't think it's it's not necessarily it's not melodramatic or maudlin like that. And and I mean that in a good way about streetcar, but um, yeah. um, with with Down by Law, you know, like you have Ellen Barkin swinging for the walls in her scene mm -hmm. and and Tom Waits is just sitting there taking it, you know, kind of staring at the floor while she throws things out the, off the balcony. And, and, you know, she has this kind of funny New York accent for some reason um, uh, that's, you know, very like, pronounced um in almost a comedic way um i i for me i felt like she was an example of characters who um walk into that movie and because of the location think they have to act a certain way mm -hmm. and tom tom waits and john Lurie are are these these quiet you know characters who are honestly kind of boring like like a lot of us are in real life and um i just like that 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 scene with Ellen Barkin and Tom Waits especially because I think it really sets up the tone for the film that characters like Ellen Barkin aren't what we're going to get for the rest of this movie. I think that's really interesting to point out. Also, like, you know, the cinematographer for this movie uh, is, is, you know, a, is a German cinematographer who very much, I think, like, takes a lot from the German style of filmmaking of the time. And then I think also there's, like, a lot of Japanese, like, influences of this film. Like, the way that they shoot from, like, a really low level a lot of times and then kind of... Mm -hmm like put up and it has these like really wide like wide angle lenses so like the, like the shot i just showed you guys of uh boop or where to go of like this entire movie is just it kind of gives you sense it almost reminds me like almost like of a Wong Kar Wai film maybe or maybe some kurosawa uh where it was just shot in this really dynamic way that gave you a sense of being kind of swallowed up in it by it mm-hmm like it's not so much a movie that you watch; it's like a movie you experience, and like you're just there and you're sitting with them. Um, the, the the photography in this movie is terrific, and I just want to I I want to acknowledge um, uh, Amber Amber in the chat would know because of the uh, uh, she's familiar with the area, but apparently that accent is actually pretty pretty accurate for a lot of people who grow up in New Orleans. So the the the, the Ellen Barkin one. Yeah, the Ellen Barkin one. Well, she's just sort of like, I guess I think she's sort of Creole, I guess, or something. It's it's bothering me a lot. I'm watching a lot of anime lately, and I feel like mm -hmm. the thing that I can't stand in the American dub anime, like, and I'm talking about, like, Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh, because specifically mm -hmm. I'm trying to understand what's going on over there, uh, is that everyone, like, there's always, like, a couple characters with these really thick, almost offensive, like, Brooklyn accents, like all like, mm -hmm. all like the bully kids and whatever. I'm just like, where is that? What they think we all sound like? Like all our idiots sound like they're from Brooklyn, uh, and that like really bothers me. And so I don't know. Yeah, the dialect in this movie didn't didn't twinge me as much, but I'm not from the area, so 
I kind of well, registered it as just different. Um, uh, yeah. Um, uh, even with that in mind, I think she still does a good job of, of setting up like uh, uh, how different the rest of the characters in this film are going to be from her. Yeah. The, that said, um, the photography, uh, yeah, this is a beautiful shot. Um, uh, Robbie Mueller, who does a lot of the uh, cinematography for Jarmusch's films, like this was very much a coming out party for him after Stranger Than Paradise. Just it, so many beautiful wide shots in this movie. Yeah, like um, I'm trying to like look through real quick, but like the idea is, what would you say the biggest difference is between this and, and Stranger Than Paradise, which was his, you know, his his one before this, or this was his third one, so there was one in between, I guess. But. Uh, so he did. Um, Technically, this is his third film. Um, his first film was called Permanent Vacation, which is basically mm -hmm. his thesis film, mm -hmm. and it's it's not bad at all. Um, but it's it's a student film, you know. It's but like it comes as a special feature on the Stranger Than Paradise uh, uh, Criterion DVD or Blu-ray, so you can just watch mm -hmm. it there. Um, but the Stranger Than Paradise was his second film, and that was like his first film he was able to make with somewhat of a budget, but still very much an indie. And then this one, um, uh, I just, I feel like he really found his voice and his confidence as a director. And he was able to tell more of an adult story, whereas um, Stranger Than Paradise was still about, very much about being, you know, young and in your 20s. Um, mm -hmm. uh, this one was, you know, about characters of a few different ages. I think, you know, at a glance, Tom Waits seems like the youngest character in this film. Which is bizarre. Like, try saying that, like, in a sentence. Like, try just yeah. thinking about Tom Waits, I think, is the youngest person in this film. <laughs> but That's Roberto Benigni ends up being filled with wisdom that we don't even realize his character has. And he yeah. demonstrates that through action more than dialogue throughout the movie. And I love it. Yeah. Oh, sorry, one second. My phone is ringing, but I actually don't know where my phone is. So that's weird. Okay, well, <laughs> no problem. Um, the one thing I think that I'm reading here that I also... It's it's a criticism, but I think it, it's a it's a funny kind of concept here. Maybe you'll be able to parse out with me. Is uh, do you feel that these are characters who would aspire to be in a Jim Jarmusch film and can't make it? Now again, that's a little harsh, but I don't know if if, if there were such a thing as characters that would want to be in a Jim Jarmusch film. By definition, I think hipsters are the kind of hipsters that these men are uh, that Tom Waits and, and John Lorry are. It's not like they would want to be in a Jim Jarmusch film. It's, it's you know, that they're just living their lives as Jim Jarmusch characters. Maybe this person can't handle that, what that looks like. Yeah, I think I think I think you're right on it. Uh, uh, I think the, the issue is um, uh, if you have people who are actively campaigned to be in a Jarmusch film, they have no chance of getting into it. Yeah, unless you it's popping cigarettes and maybe then you can like, you know, you'll let anyone in. Well, I do think Patterson's a good example of like Adam Driver had his pick of projects uh, after The Force Awakens, especially, and he was very smart with his career. He chose a lot of really good movies, mm -hmm. uh, has a, has been building his resume with really quality work. But Patterson was a chance for him to work with, uh, who I think, in one opinion, is one of the great filmmakers working today, Jim Jarmusch. And I think when you get a chance to work with him or David Lynch or Berta Herzog, you just take the job. You figure right. out your schedule and you take the job. That's and why, see, yeah. And then see if you can become part of the Sons of Lee Marvin, which I believe Adam Driver would also be allowed in the club of. Crazy I think enough. by default, yeah. I think by default he would at this point. That's um. really funny. 
I think that there's uh, I haven't seen Patterson yet, but I do think you're right about Adam Driver because you know he took his his time with the projects, but he you know he chose a couple Noah Baumbach films, which is like another kind of another kind of look or feel or style, you know, doing um. Oh, I forget the one with him and Gerwig playing the... I think it's him and Gerwig playing the couple and uh, the younger version of a couple. And then there's Ben Stiller and... Oh, God, I don't think it's Jennifer Jason Lee. Maybe it's Naomi Watts or somebody and they're like the older version. They're just not the older version, but they're just like an older couple that befriends the younger couple. Forget the name of this film. It was after Greenberg, uh, but he was great in that. And then he did another Bombback film, right? Or no, I'm thinking of uh, the, Greta, the other Greta Gerwig film he did. Anyway, the point being that, like, yeah, he took his time, picked mostly indie films, like smaller indie films. And I think, yeah, took his time to figure out what uh, auteurs he wanted to work with. Mm-hmm. Like, figured out, like, what kind of, like, you know, it's almost like he's the kind of person, I think, to your point, that would want to be in a Jim Jarmusch movie. And he's the kind of cool sir I can imagine, so. And I guarantee you, like, he played it cool as well to get that audition and get the part. I, uh, I, I, I can just imagine, like, you know, he wanted to seem on the ball, but not too eager. Mm-hmm. I had um, a very brief, brief, brief um, window into Jim Jarmusch's production of The Limits of Control back in 2008. Um, I had an internship at the time at Focus Features. It was just Ooh. part of I and it was I got it. You know, it was it was very fun. But, you know, a lot of a lot of grunt work, as you would expect. But, you know, I got to read cool scripts met a few cool people I've kept in touch with over the years, um, got to drive around the universal lot. But the thing I, one of the highlights was um, I was reading the script of limits of control and I, and I knew they were filming it in Spain and I wasn't going to get to go to Spain and work on the movie or anything. But I was like, I at least want to just let them know, like I'm a fan and I'm interested in this. So I was the, the guy who was like, I love Jarmish stuff and I want to let them know I love Jarmish stuff. And I didn't get to talk to him or anything like that. But what was cool is um, I got a phone call from his personal assistant. Oh, wow. And we we talked for 15 minutes. And uh, it was a really nice guy uh, who just asked me a bunch of questions about what I was doing at Focus Features and stuff like that. And he said, to be frank, you know, we're in in Spain. You know, uh, there's not a lot you can do remotely from Los Angeles, but we appreciate you being interested in the film. And if anything happens stateside while you're still out there, we'll let you know. Nothing came of it, but for them to take the time, yeah, I thought was showed a lot of character. I felt like that's actually uh, cool. yeah, that's that's yeah. for Hollywood. That's like for Hollywood for yeah for the Hollywood industry. Like that's a surprising like thing to go out of your way and take 15 minutes to go do is talk to somebody who is genuinely interested in 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 your work. Well, I wrote this whole email to the assistant and Jarmish was copied on it about how I really enjoyed the script and I couldn't wait to see it visualized and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, it was it was kind of like just getting a polite response from a fan letter uh, in the most personal way. And I appreciated that. I thought, you know, you couldn't offer me a job, but you went out of your way to be nice. And that was really cool. I mean, it would surprise. I think one of the things being a, I was a a party reporter for many years and I did like red carpets back in New York where like the, the vibe about celebrities or like filmmakers or anyone in the industry is much different. And like, it was much more accessible and like you would just go to after parties and people would just, you know, celebrities would just be there. But I've been surprised and I'm not sure if this is a quarantine thing or just uh, underestimating my own ability to be inherently interesting or overestimating how much people just have to do on a, on a, day-to-day basis and how interested they are in like just meeting new people but every single time i've done a show about a director that i've really liked just even on this own channel like when we did 
time crimes uh, recently. Mm -hmm. uh, I ended up talking and DMing with uh, the director of that movie. We're still DMing. He's in, he's near Warner Brothers right now, finishing up a shoot for something. Apparently, he's he makes in Spain a parody of Twin Peaks season three. That's like uh, his own web series, and like he, I saw some of that, and I was just like, "Wow, I can't believe like how available people are if you just like at them on Twitter." Because I think some of these, uh, you know, directors that I think of as like these huge names, like Vincenzo Naftali, who I love, whose work I just mm -hmm. like have been obsessed with ever since Cuban Haunter. And I love his like episodes of like Westworld and and stuff. I mean, it's just it's always funny to me like that that the way that actually sincere filmmakers I think appreciate fans because I don't think they get like uh, shouted out like a lot on social media. They're not they don't have like a Snyderverse uh, contingent right. behind them, so they just go on a personal personal basis and they go, okay, like this person liked my movie. I'm just gonna see if they're cool. It's it's so refreshing when that happens and. Uh... And also when you can tell whether it's a director or an actor who's actually invested in their work, when they will reply back to you. Um, one of the best uh, replies I ever got, and this is uh, just a random reply years ago, uh, Nikolai Coster Waldo from Game of Thrones replied to mm -hmm. me because I just said, hey, I saw your new movie, Shock. it was Shock Collar, the one he did with um, John Bernthal. It's pretty good. And I what tweeted it. I What's that? that one. Well, what, it's what a was it's, it's, it's it's a prison movie. It's it's thematically oh. connected to our film Down by Law, um, okay. uh, but it's a it's a decent prison movie um, about a guy who gets uh, uh, um, Nikolai Kostarwalto gets in prison and has to kind of pretend to be a part of a white supremacist group to survive while he's in there. But it's uh, he's quite good. And I tweeted, I was like, "Hey, you did a really good job in the film," and he just replied, "Thanks, Adam." It's like, wow. wait, that's uh, like. Such yeah. a perfect reply. Thanks, Adam. Like he just like not your username, not your handle. Just thanks, Adam. Yeah, he looked at my actual name and wrote it out, and uh, and I screen okay. captured that tweet and it's immortalized. I I, I love it. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. I love that as a response. Thanks, Adam. Mm -hmm. Like he and knows that, you. Like, and that oh. was when I had like twenty Twitter followers or something. Like that was a million years. That was a long time ago. Um, so. But yeah. sorry, before the fame and stardom of before uh, moved into the hundreds, but no, I just mean like I Twitter was something I did as a fly on the wall before the schmodown. That's my only mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's I'm now trying to remember like some of my better because I don't want to come off as humble bragging. I want and get yelled at by Amber for <laughs> having uh, names to pick up at the end of this show here, but I've had like so many like even during quarantine, I think uh, I ended up talking to or this person found me. It was the writer of the new Scream movie who wrote, he was the co-writer of uh, Ready or Not. Uh -huh. But he, I liked one of his tweets and then he saw my bio and he like DM me and he was like, Garmin Bosia. He's like, you've got my attention. Like, what's oh, boy. up? And I was like, I don't know. What's up with you? Like, how's it going? Like editing Scream. And within like a day, he like was calling me on the phone and telling me his theories about the season th or the return and like what he wants to do with it. And what he, okay. what he would do. And I was like, okay, man, like that's pretty, that's pretty cool. I guess. Maybe it's a quarantine thing. Maybe it's the vibe of like if you like certain niche things, then the then the people whose work you like probably also like those things, and they're going to like vibe with you. And so I bring that kind of confidence in a way <laughs> to every single Twitter interaction I ever have. I it's so refreshing to hear. And again, I'm I'm kind of uh, you know newer to some of this more regular interaction on Twitter, but I'm getting the hang of it. You know. Yeah. It's it's good. I mean, like, I think, yeah, I think for Twitter, it's just that you, the people that I think you and me naturally gravitate towards 
don't have like even if they have three hundred thousand followers, they don't have like the deal. Like no one's Vigalandis. Uh, no one's talking to Nacho Vigalandis, being like, "Oh man, when's Colossal Two coming out?" You know, or like, "Man, like who's directing the American remake of Time Crimes?" Like no one's messaging him about that. He's not like there's not like a huge fan base that's like constantly hitting him up. So well, I think, yeah, I. I- Exactly. Like they, I, I think it's refreshing for a lot of these people to hear from from people who are genuinely interested. But then there's also the weird movies I get obsessed with that I really don't have a good excuse about. And I, I told you about Ghost Lake, right? No, what's that? Okay, uh, I'll try and keep this brief. Um, no, Ghost, tell me as long as you want. <laughs> sounds great. It's a terrible film. It's terrible. It's absolutely okay. awful. Um, but the thing is. Um, uh, good friends of mine. Um, I used to spend, uh, I would meet up with them every summer for a few years out at uh, Lake Rushford in Western New York, outside of Buffalo. Okay. And Lake Rushford's a nice little lake community with a campground and whatnot. And they have their one claim to fame is that a local boy made a, an independent horror film uh, on location in the early 2000s called Ghost Lake. He got himself about 150 grand and made a two-hour film on digital video that uh, is way too long and it's it's hard to get through in parts but the thing is um we had a tradition as we would go there every summer we would watch ghost lake and by the second by the second or third summer we were watching it with the director's commentary and then um and then it became a a full-on obsession uh where um i uh one year um i bought all the remaining copies left on Amazon at the time and sent them to all my friends. Uh, so that ghost like would be, so that ghost like would be sold out for a week. And no then else, no one else can get their hands on ghost light. Yeah. Cause I wanted to create a demand for it. Cause it's yeah, not right. streaming. Seriously. Yeah. And then I uh, started following the actors on social media and then they started following me back. And uh, I, I don't really, it's not like I know them or that it would be that interesting, but like the star of that film has gone on to be like, uh, he, he specializes in equestrian science and he moved to Colorado and started so his own music career. I'm just trying to look it up. This is not the 2018 one with Scott Adsit and Carol Kane, is it? No, is no, no, no such good actors as that. I believe this came out in 2004. Okay, gotcha. It stars um, uh, Timothy Prindle and Tatum Adair, two hmm. very... Uh, uh, popular actors it but it's scary no it's very bad drew and it, okay. and and the thing is like i can't recommend in good conscience that people watch it it is a film that if you do watch it you need to actively scream back at the movie um it, it's that's the only way to get through it but it is so bizarrely a failure um it's not quite on the room's level as being spectacular as a failure but it's 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 knocking on the door of that I, I'm just reading the like little bit of reviews that I see. It's 2003 uh, that I I can see about it on maybe it was that's festival thing uh, that I can see online. It makes it sound like something that's very intriguing to me. It's not saying anything about what what the content of the movie is. It's just saying what what the movie is trying to achieve, or it's kind of like commenting on like the movie itself as like a lovable weird figure. So I I'm very interested in this. It's a it's, dance movie. Uh, I I don't. You could classify it as a lot of things, but okay. it's it's just very much a local upstate New York movie um, that you know had had big aspirations. Did you ever see um, uh, what is it? Child Eater was that Perry Nemiroff's movie that she did? 
Child uh, Year? Yeah, that was her movie. I, I dug that movie. Like it's an indie and it's you know got a limited budget, but it's it's I, that one's made with more heart than Ghost Lake. Ghost Lake is just it's just a misfire on every level. At least um, so like low budget movies like that, I, I have a soft spot for them when they when they have a heart. Uh, mm-hmm. Another one like that is Witch in the Window, which is on Shutter. Um, it's not like an old timer, but it's a really strong horror indie. And that's a, t- a director I tweeted at once who was very friendly towards me as well. His name's Andy Mitten. And uh, he did The Witch in the Window on Shutter. Very solid movie. Shot on location in Vermont. Um, I thought you lo- always know the locations. That would be like a really good wheel slice for you. It's like location. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just excited when they shoot on location in New England and don't pretend oh, gotcha, it's New gotcha. England. Yeah, yeah. And they should shoot everything in Vermont because it's a beautiful state. Vermont is gorgeous. Now that's Ithaca, but Vermont is also gorgeous. <laughs> it is. Um, I felt this way, I, you know, because I used to work this indie movie store in in Delaware. They had locations in Maryland, though, and famously it was like the store that was used in Serial Mom and a couple other uh, of the John Waters movies because he was local. Um, mm-hmm. And it was a store that, you know, was like prided itself on being like this, you know, it was called it was Video Americana uh, was one of them and Video Paradiso was the other one. And it organized all its like VHSs and later DVDs and Blu-rays by uh, by director and like by like subgenre, like by like niche genre, like subgenre. It's one of these like very very cool hip like locations. And I worked there most summers until I was almost like eighteen at various locations that I would be living at one way or another. And that's how I discovered um, I Can See You, which was like a movie that I was really obsessed with for a while because I could tell that it had been shot in Delaware. Like, I don't know how, like, I just knew it. Like, I don't, I felt something in the back of my neck watching that movie. And I was like, this is a Delaware movie. Same with Jeremy Saulnier. Like, he turns out he's from, like, uh, right outside of D.C. But I could tell just watching Blue Ruin, which I think has a scene in Bethany Beach, that, like, it it was from around my area. They were from my neck of the woods. And then when I was playing Until Dawn, which was the entire reason I got a PS4, like, in the first place back, Mm -hmm. like, back in 2016, uh, I was like, this movie, I mean, this this game is really great. And I was like, there's something about it, though. I mean, I feel like this is doesn't take place in Delaware. I feel like this is a Delaware kind of video game. It's a certain vibe. And, like, it's nothing should have informed me that. And I looked at the director of the video game or the co-creator, and it's the same guy who did I Can See You. It's uh, Graham Resnick is his name. Also, Oh, yeah. Film. Yeah. He did all I, the music for Ty West films, which also is Delaware. <laughs> oh, all the Ty West movies? Yeah, he's Delaware too. So um, I like Ty West films. I, I, I House of the Devil, Innkeepers. I own both of those. Mm-hmm. I like The Sacrament, but I like those first two more. I liked I like The Sacrament a lot because it speaks very much to like my interest of like oh like let's just take this you know it's 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 a found footage movie. It's it was the, it was the Jim Jones story, but was I was Jim okay Jones. with that. Yeah. Yeah, it was just, it's just doing Jim Jones, but what if Vice was there? Like, it's mm-hmm. very specifically Vice, uh, like, has a news crew down there. Um, and Amy Simons is in it, and it's, it's. I know Eli Roth produced it, and it was supposed to be this, like, you know, hugely, I think, shocking thing. All the death scenes in it, like, the, the, the mass death in it, spoiler alert, it's Jim Jones. Uh, mm-hmm. But it also has, a, what's his name, the other indie director who's who's the character in it, who's in Your Next, and Joe Swansburg. There we go. Uh, yeah, I, and Ty West himself likes to pop up as as a performer too sometimes. Yeah, but he's I, in the next, yeah, it's like that trio. I, that trio of filmmakers are all in your next as actors. Yeah, The Innkeepers is my favorite personally. Really, I really like that movie. I love the setting of it. I love the vibe of it. Yeah. I love the visuals. I love the tension. I enjoy the comedy. 
Uh, I, I really like the innkeepers a lot. I'll have to rewatch it. I watched that one at work. I found it very strange. Like I remember, because uh, uh, was it Pat Healy is in it or is it uh, AJ Bowen? I get those two confused all the time, and I'm friends with them, and I still can't tell them apart sometimes. Honestly, AJ was in, well, AJ was in Last House, but I think uh, Pat was probably in Innkeepers. Uh, I'll double check. I know um, Kelly McGillis is in it. And I know Lena Dunham has like a two second thing in it as like the girl working at the coffee shop. Uh, I think it's Pat. It must be Pat. It's Pat Healy. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's great. Um, One time when I first came to start visiting LA, this was like in 2000, whenever Girls was big. So me and Lena went to college together. So whenever Girls was getting big, I remember me and Ty West ended up meeting up because we were mutually friends with Lena and uh, going to karaoke one night. <laughs> she wasn't there. We just decided to meet up because we're both from Delaware and we both knew Lena. So we went out to karaoke at Bigfoot Lodge, which is like right around here. And this was, I think, when he was making the innkeepers. Um, mm-hmm. And I, at one point I needed to be dropped off at my friend's house, which was all the way in Eagle Rock. And it was up these winding, winding hills and like, or almost like more towards the Pasadena side. God, I saw yeah. But like uh, her house was like really hard to find. And like the GPS cuts out halfway through because you're like in the hills. I remember driving around for a good like hour and a half. Like he was giving me a ride home and my friend had left and just like just it getting creepier and creepier. And he was getting really bugged out. Now, I don't think I'm probably the best person to be in a car with. Like when you're starting to like freak out about your own dark thoughts that you have in your head about your horror movie director and you're alone and like on a dark winding road and you don't have GPS and you don't have like cell phone signal. But I'll like never forget that moment because it felt so cinematic. Like it felt very much like we were mm-hmm. in a movie. Uh, that he would write. I'm just waiting I, for that one day. Well, tell him, you know, like we should get drinks sometime. I want to. I, I have. I have thoughts on the innkeepers and many other things. I, um, I guess my main thought about the innkeepers was who is the second? Was she the second ghost the woman was referring to? When the um, woman talked about, like uh, being able to see several ghosts. I'm not sure. You know, like I. I Granted, I don't want to get into too many plot specifics no, for no, the uninitiated, but that's but, why I just said as big as that. Yeah, I um, what I do recall of that film is um, it's 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 a good showcase of of having a single location, yeah, and um, really making it work and and doing the whole New England hotel that's on the brink of bankruptcy, and you have the ghost hunter employees. It, it just it, it's a really fun movie uh, that has a lot of genuine thrills too. There's a couple of those that I like where it's sort of like the idea of, of, of haunting and being haunted. I actually, to me, about this, this is not a spoiler for the innkeepers. This is just my favorite sub sub genre of movie. Uh, and it's kind of off tangent, but uh, you know, the trailer for the new Edgar Wright film came out and I was like, this is my favorite sub genre movie. And I'm just going to start calling it para noir. And it's specifically movies in which the alive haunt the dead or possess the dead in order to solve their own cold case mystery, like their own cold case murder. But it's not like the ghosts are haunting them. It's like they go back or there's some sort of like, you know, weird experience where they live in the shoes of the person who died. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Haunters like that a little bit. The Vincenzo Natale movie uh, has like some elements of that. Uh, like a couple other movies I really like involve just, yeah, people sort of, uh, the others, I guess, is kind of that kind of movie too, where it's sort mm-hmm. of the humans are, are haunting the living. Um, and I, I, yeah, I really, I don't know if, I don't even remember if that's what's happening in the innkeepers. Cause I think it ended in a way that left me like very confused about what had actually occurred over the course of the film, but I really uh, enjoyed it for like the ambiance. I had, uh, I think a friend of mine pointed out that in every single one of his movies, people like to eat pizza gratuitously. 
like in a really like almost like obscene way. I haven't checked out that in the innkeepers, but I remember rewatching House of the Devil recently and being like, "Oh my god, he's right." The pizza mm-hmm. is like such a prominent part of it. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I love the things uh, he tends to focus on, and I think we're overdue for uh, a new film from from Mr. West. I, I can't. Yeah. It was the last one he's done something since the Sacrament, right? Uh I think did he do one of the VHSs? I feel like maybe he did one of the. the oh yeah, I, I, he contributed to one of those, but I can I think Sacrament may have been his most recent feature. That seems. That is. That, that does seem weird. It feels like he should have been doing more because he was hitting like a peak with the Sacrament, right? I mean, he was like that wasn't a movie that was considered a bad thing. Um, he's done a couple. Okay, so he was. This is weird. He's done apparently a ton of movies. Was it just producer? No, he's directed a ton of movies. I've just never heard of any of them. Uh, or is it just TV? Or no, it's movies. Something called uh, Outcast and the Exorcist in 2017, but those both look like maybe television things. Hmm. Uh, the Passage and The Chamber, those are both television. The Resident, Soundtrack, Tales from the Loop, Them, these are all like television shows. I guess he moved directly into television. I guess it looks like what happens is he did VHS, the ABCs of Death, and then just decided entirely that he wanted to focus on on segmented, uh, like, part, like, you know, episodic movies or television or whatever like he's done just one-offs since then well let me ask you let me ask you this have you seen uh uh not to pivot too much but have you seen crispin glover's directorial work the one with him the one that got him like on trouble and letterman that that weird one no the ones he tours with across the world no i haven't um uh the first film is called what is it Okay. And uh, the second film is called Everything is Fine. That sounds a little bit familiar. This is, this is sounding very Wham City comedy, that, that collective I told you about that does the very strange Lynchian performance art ARG stuff from Baltimore. But like, what is it and Everything is Fine sounds exactly like titles that they would have. Well, you know, here's the thing. I am... Uh, as you know, I'm 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 a fan of, of Crispin in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Um, I enjoy his eccentricities. I enjoy his his work on on screen, especially. Um, I own his CD, which he signed. Um, I own his book, which he signed mm-hmm. uh, about uh, rat catching. Um, oh right, yeah, because yeah. Then- um, well, that was he wrote that before Willard ever came out, and that's the creepy thing. It's like he predicted it or something. It was oh it was weird, a, oh yeah, weird. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. He wrote a book about catching rats before he was in a movie about giant rats. That is, he's so fucking weird. Okay, tell yeah. me your Christopher story. I really want to hear it now. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's it. I saw his films, um, so. Once I found out he was touring, um, he still is, um, I looked into his schedule. And when I finished up that internship in L.A., I drove back east to Ohio, where I was living at the time. And I found out that Crispin was going to be in, um, I think it was Chandler, Arizona. He was doing he was doing a screening at a movie theater in Arizona. And me and a couple of my buddies stopped there. And we saw the film, What Is It?, which is the first of his film. And um, 
the thing about what is it is it's a very ambitious swing. Uh, he his intention was to do a film comprised um, mostly of adult actors with Down syndrome. Uh, you know, to in many ways, you know, just uh, remove the, the the stigma of, of uh, you know working with with uh, actors um, predominantly, you know, with a perceived disability on screen. And I, I understand his intent behind it. The problem is the film comes off as mildly exploitative yeah. um, in a lot of ways, even though he's very direct about his intent in the Q and A afterwards. Mm -hmm. I get it. The film is not an entire, it's not a very pleasant film to watch. It's not, yeah. it's not, it's not horribly offensive, but I didn't get a lot out of it. I was interested to see what he wanted to put into a film. And yeah. then the, the follow-up, everything is fine. He made with a friend of his who had a cerebral palsy uh, and was completely, oh, like, he helped write the film with Crispin. But it's a sexually explicit film. It's a bit jarring. I, and again, you understand when you're watching it what the intent is. But it's not, neither film are what I would consider to be, you know, rewatchable. I would understand. I mean, I understand that from like the way that I used to love. Uh, I didn't love all his movies, but I loved Harmony Corinne's book. He had this book called uh, "Crack Up at the Race Riots" that was just filled with tiny. I mean, yeah, it's awful. I mean, the title alone just tells you everything you need to know about like the kids and Spring Breakers guy writing a book like that. Uh, but it was just full of like little vignettes of just like you know weird, uncomfortable imagery. Like it wasn't a story. It wasn't essays. They were just like, he was like, imagine a boy in the field and like, he only has one shoe and he's eating an ice cream cone and his hands are sticky. It was just like, go on from there. Just like a right. tablet almost. But like, it was so unsettling and weird as you imagine the guy from directed Gummo and Julian Donkey Boy would make it uh, and trash mm -hmm. uh, And there is, there was something about that. Like, you know, it was the avant-garde new cinema, I think, that we grew up with maybe uh like wouldn't be able to exist today in the same way i mean when sia when sia made that film recently about uh, a young woman with um with uh, uh asperger's or was it a uh, yeah it was asperger's i think and, and she just hired the the young girl that she usually has play her in music videos and it became a whole thing and you know, the idea of exploitation in this context i remember like when ryan murphy came out and he was doing Glee and American Horror Story at the same time. There was uh, mm -hmm. one actress, or sorry, two different actresses, both who had Down syndrome to be mm -hmm. just regular characters on the show. Like, right. Right. regular. And it always struck me as like, oh yeah, like why, it, it wasn't ever like a, a huge amount of the plot point. It was just, these were characters that existed in the world of the show, which I always thought was like, uh, Ryan Murphy has his faults, but I never thought that was one of them, was exploiting people with hand handicaps or, or physical handicaps, you know? Right, and it's really just about reflecting the world we live in, which I, I think is important. The thing with, with Crispin's films is the intent is there, um, and I'm not, I'm not, it's not like I'm, I'm prudish about them when I watch them. It's just when you watch them, they're a bit blunt and a bit on the nose, to be yeah. honest with you. And I like Crispin a lot as a creative force because his writing and his bizarre music and and a lot of the illustrations he's done are very interesting, but his acting is what he does best. And I and every time he shows up in a new project, I'm, I watched what I watched of American Gods for him because I wanted oh, to God, see- Oh, he was great in American Gods. God, he was a, so good He's American so God. good, he's so good. And- he should, um, If they ever bring back Hannibal, he should be, a, he should be like sort of, they should, you know, he should be like the Eddie Izzard, iterate the new eddie izzard iteration of uh 
that kind of character or like, you know, Mace, Mason Verger, just re recast him again and put it as Crispin Glover. I, I would love, love it. it. I would right? love it. But I think he's best when he's collaborating with someone uh, in yes. his wheelhouse. So when he, I think, I think Dead Man is one of his best performances, even though it's like three minutes. Uh, it's, it's very, very good. You know what I love him in, and I hadn't seen this movie until recently, and I was like, wow, look at the, the talent that's actually like low-key stacked up on this movie, is What's Eating Gilbert Grape? Oh my like, god, yes. He's so good in that, because he's, he's very casual. He's so good. He's just so natural. He plays he plays one of uh, one of uh, Gilbert's friends, along with John C. Riley is yeah. like the other best friend. Uh, and Leonardo DiCaprio is the, playing the mentally handicapped brother in that movie, and right. he is also putting on like the I think probably the best Leo performance has been his performance in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. It is so good. Uh, it's so just, you know, he's just inhabiting this role. And it's, it's so authentic. It feels so real like that. I don't know. Uh, but uh, Crispin playing in like a weirdly darkly humorous undertaker who works at like the, at the, at the mm -hmm. funeral home in town. And it's just like that creepy guy who lives in that small town perfect role for him he's just telling you about like how the body probably fell over of like a local woman's wife uh, or husband sorry uh and it's he's just saying yeah. no no the guy would have to fall in the water this way and he wouldn't be able to you know if he, he had a heart attack standing up he would have fallen over <laughs> this way and like he's just doing it with the salt and pepper shaker and it's amazing he's very very uh practical about it um the dynamic between johnny depp christian glover and john c Riley is pretty great in that movie and i think uh people don't realize they're all in that and you go back and watch it and they stick out like sore thumbs now, but it's because they're like Crispin and John C. Riley are playing really normal guys um, mm -hmm. who are funny. And like John C. Riley is just excited about the burger joint opening up. Oh, in yeah, town, yeah. The whole, place for opening up. He's so excited about it. And, I, and Crispin's crushing on Gilbert's younger sister um, mm -hmm. the whole time. And he's like, you want to take a ride in my hearse? Yeah. <laughs> oh God. It's, yeah, I think I think I think you're right. I think he needs to work with collaborators. I also just think he's good as like, like he's just good as somebody you just drop in a film as like a random ass cameo, and you're like, oh hey, Kristen Glover, because he does. Like what I'm saying is, I think ostensibly is, and I think we're getting the same point is like maybe don't take the reins. Like he is somebody who probably needs like a yin to balance his yang out a little bit. So whether mm -hmm. it's his own projects or something, he needs a collaborator. I will say, his homes are gorgeous. He may he might have. Oh my god! Yes. I haven't yeah. been to them in person, but I've seen the pictures, and they're breathtaking. That chateau in the Czech Republic and his mansion in—it's uh, in LA, right? It's—it's. It's, I ended up Airbnbing from him accidentally. Uh, uh, well, every single time I came to—the <laughs> first time was an accident, and then every single time I came to LA afterwards was on purpose. Uh, <laughs> it was this place in Silver Lake. It was like the very, very top of Silver Lake. It was like pretty. It was pretty affordable and the place it looked like was just this giant sort of sprawling estate at the very top of the hill and it looked like something out of a david lynch movie it was all like very baroque dark red walls and like these yeah it's like palatial floors and it looked kind of like i'm not sure that it isn't the place they filmed inland empire like it, it just has this vibe to it and i was like oh i want to stay there so i get there and i uh check in and i'm doing all the stuff and i message the person whose name is c and we're talking about the Wi-Fi and the router. So I'm trying to log on to the internet. He's in the Czech Republic. We can't figure out like how to <laughs> connect me up. And so I go out and I buy one of these like, you know, transponder connectors that like will, or like a mesh router that will like expand my mesh, the mesh network of the Wi-Fi of the place. And I'm like, you can keep it. 
just keep it afterwards, like, you know, in, in good faith. I just wanted to buy it because I couldn't get any Wi-Fi. And I try to log in and it connects me to his like home mesh network. And it just says Crispin. And I am just like a little baby detective. Like it was part of my journalism upbringing. It's just what I do. Yeah. I get crazy. So I'm like, how many people named Crispin live in Los Angeles and can afford an estate that is comprised of several other places he's Airbnb and like it just has a pond, like a koi pond, like it's completely remote. And I was just like typed in Crispin Glover, Los Feliz and up popped a picture of the house I was staying in. And I was like, oh, well, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, wow. Yeah. So it's it's pretty great. I, I, I try to recommend it uh, to everyone except not anymore because uh, this is like the such a weird part of it, but I actually know somebody who uh, died there uh, recently. Oh, geez. Yeah, so that was well, also now like, a crazy part of it that is, and not because of anything Crispin did, he was not in the right, country. Right, 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 right. But it has um, like a very weird innkeeper effect because I remember inviting somebody, like the friend over to visit me when I first stayed there. And I was like, I think this place is haunted. And like, we like spent a lot like, of time like snooping around being like, oh, are there ghosts on this property? There probably are. And yeah, they they were staying there for like a month, and they they passed away, and it's nuts. Wow, that is that is that is a lot. I mean, I I will say with Crispin, um, thing that's impressive with both both of his homes that I've I've picked because he there's a whole article about his chateau at the Czech Republic that came out yeah, a couple they did years a ago. Home, yeah, good housekeeping a couple years back. Um, but it's just an example of like what you can do with your money. Yeah. When you are responsible in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, you know, like. And it's crazy that he is, that that's who's responsible in Los Angeles. Crispin Glover, like, decided, like, yeah, he's also got third place, I think, in New York that he Airbnbs. Yeah, like, he just, he invests his royalties. He, he knows what he's doing. He picks his projects. And, like, he's still, like, like I, I remember, like, he said he coasted off that Charlie's Angels money for years. Yeah. And meanwhile, Johnny Depp, who had like billions, literally billions of dollars uh, of money, like, you know, goes away in a heartbeat when you buy private islands and get into right. huge, like, lawsuits and drink like golden chalices and all this stuff. But like Crispin Glover, weirdly sober about money, like weirdly practical <laughs> about about finances. And it, you can see the payoff. I mean, the place was gorgeous. I, I actually still need to go by there because apparently there's... Uh, the, the person's parents said that they left something for me, like of theirs that they want me to pick up and like a little something to remember them by. And I, I need to do it, but I've been putting it off because I feel like weird about the whole situation mm -hmm. now that like I know somebody who I like recommended a, a place to stay and then they don't live anymore. And it's Crispin Glover's house. It's just layers on top of layers. Yeah, like, I know that's, I don't blame you. That's a lot to process. Um, yeah. That happened like I, two months ago. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Well, I know it's incidental, like the current, like it happening there, but at the same time, it, it's hard to separate that. It's so, so hard, especially because like the place is still gorgeous. Like the place is just like now. I'm like, if I got a million dollars, I would buy that place back and like hold the seances every night, uh, <laughs> or maybe not. I don't know. I mean, it had this giant. I remember the the first place because you could stay different rooms of it. The first place had this giant king suite like size bathroom that had this oval window that you like look out on when you take like a giant bath in a clawfoot tub and it just like and there was like a bidet and like it was just very old old hollywood it was like wow you know it just hollywood isn't that old of a place but when you can find a place that obviously had been around since let's just say the howard hughes period of time yeah it feels super old it's fascinating i i it doesn't surprise me at all um 
Uh, it would have been really cool if he'd been in Down by Law, wouldn't it have been? Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. Totally cool if he had been in Down by Law. Has he ever done a Drummer's film? Dead Man. That was that was the oh, only one. Dead one. Yeah. yeah, Dead I Man. Yeah. That shows you something. He might be the link between Lynch and and Jaramouche, but they both he appeared briefly in both of those directors' work, and then didn't become an ongoing regular for some reason. Sadly not. Sadly not. Now, did you ever hear of um, David Lynch's and uh, Herzog's collaboration with Michael Shannon and Willem Dafoe? That is ringing a bell. That is ringing a bell, but from something a while ago. What what was this? <clears throat> my son, my son, what have you done? Uh, Ooh, I don't think I've even heard of it. Maybe this is, I'm completely new to this. It's kind of it? hard. To, it's kind of hard to track down. It came out in the two thousands, but Michael Shannon uh, plays a guy who is psychologically disturbed um, really? and, and he murders his own mother. That's not a spoiler because it's a setup of the movie. Um, and uh, the police arrive uh, led by Willem Dafoe um, trying to get him to turn himself in. Uh, at the scene of the crime, and okay. and a lot of it is uh, happens in flashback, and Grace Zabriskie plays Michael Shannon's mother, ooh, which I thought ooh, you'd appreciate. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> wait, 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 oh god! Talk about people that I'm just like obsessed with in a creepy way. Uh -huh. uh, I remember my New York. My, I went to therapy a bunch in New York. Can you believe it? I did, but I went to a lot of psychoanalysis for many years, and I remember the first time like I went, my therapist, who was like around my age and a very attractive young woman. Uh, I like lay down on the couch. It was like psychoanalysis. So it's a very Freudian go back to childhood. I talked about 10 minutes and she goes, have you ever watched the show Twin Peaks? Cause your mother oh, sounds boy. a lot like the, the mother on that show. And I was just like, okay, I'll come here four times a week for four years. That's no problem. I wouldn't mind doing this every single day if I can. Uh, and Grace Zabisky, I mean, her, her acting style is so intense that I wonder why she hasn't been in like just a billion more why she didn't just break out everywhere after Twin Peaks whenever they need a crazy lady or like a, a Requiem for the Dream style mom like why she's mm -hmm. just not the first person in line. I feel like she's one of those actors who in a different timeline would have had that Oscar winning role late in her career. Uh, yeah. You know that just escaped her but seeing her come back for the return was very gratifying so I'm, I'm glad she was in that. Her and Ray Wise, I just realized, both have like careers that I feel like were not stunted, but I'm just like, you guys are so talented. You both are such tremendous, tremendous and strange choice making actors. Crispin too, but like Crispin's like pretty famous, but like mm -hmm. Ray Wise, I mean, I just watched the other day, I just watched, uh, if you can believe it, I just watched Swamp Thing for the first time. Did not know he was Swamp Thing. Yeah, at least for a minute he is. Um, yeah. not, not for the rest of the film, but yeah, like he and Grace both got kind of pigeonholed you know in a lot yeah. of ways and uh um it started before twin peaks and got kind of cemented after twin peaks in a lot of ways i think no i think bringing it back here you're very good about bringing us back on track here but uh you know we've we sort of gone off the the tangent here but i guess i guess we can kind of sum it up with how do you think this this movie holds up you said you just rewatched it mm -hmm. uh re like for the first time in a while did you have any thoughts about it like this time, this run through that you haven't had before, that in the context of today seems that seems better or worse or the same than it has uh, on on other rewatches. The things I remember the best about it hold up really well. Um, I think the camaraderie between the characters, their journey, the 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 banality of it all um, is what really s sells the journey. Mm -hmm. um, 
the thing that stood out upon the rewatch, I already kind of talked about it, but it was the scene with Ellen Barkin and how mm-hmm. but comparatively it felt like the most melodramatic scene in the film, but purposefully so, effectively mm-hmm. so. And it really stood out to me this time. Um, I remembered his, I remember him having a relationship on the rocks, but I hadn't really thought about it. And mm-hmm. this time around, it really struck me as uh, one of the major catalysts of the film. And, and I felt her voice in his head throughout the rest of the movie. Right. I, I started watching this movie and now I remember like exactly what happened, which is he does a very specific thing, which is there is a dog barking throughout every single one of those early John uh, Laurie or I want to say Hugh Laurie, but it's John Laurie uh, scenes. It's starting with the opening one. There is just a dog barking in the back of the film. Like it's just, it, you're right. It is very streetcar. It is very kind on a hot tin roof. Yeah. It is very thrilling. I, yeah, I'm putting it together now. Right. It's just that, that noise, that ambient noise of like, there's a dog barking and it's like, there's nobody going, Hey, shut up down there. But like there could be, and it's got this kind of squalor to it, but it drove my dogs nuts. Like it was driving them crazy. And I was <laughs> outside and then I paused the movie and I was like, no, stop, put it back on. I was just like, no, there's just a dog barking in the back of this film uh, on purpose. But yeah. it's, it's just sort of like the undercurrent of her. I feel also too, maybe that was the, the, the auditory metaphor you were supposed to make that she was sort of, you know, she kind of was gnawing at him. It's it's really effective. And we were talking about shared universes the other day. The thing that I, uh, Jarmusch does that a little bit in his own movies. Uh, uh, and um, the thing that's great in Mystery Train, uh, his follow-up Down by Law, is um, Tom Waits is uh, credited in that film, but he's off camera the entire time because he's a radio DJ on the actual oh. radio. Oh wow! So is is it his character? Is this like what he would did after the movie, or is do you think this is just maybe maybe he's doing he it under like, a new alias? Who knows? He has a great riff as a radio DJ where he's just like riffing the whole thing, and it's it's great. I can't tell if they, like he improvised that or if that was pre written, but it was. I don't know. Jim Jarmusch doesn't seem like an improvise a lot kind of guy. It's not. He's uh, not. I don't think he's like uh, Seth Rogen movies or something. Uh, the, I I really love um, uh, the when John Laurie keeps pressing him to like tell him the weather when they're in the cell. That I think that was that's that I think was my favorite part of the movie. The, the whole the whole extended video, just tell me the weather. Uh just just getting him to say like what's it like outside because you know he's he's clowning on him. But uh these two are like the most hipster it kinda reminded me a little bit about being back at Oberlin, I will say that. Like there's a sense of just like these two cool for school guys just kind of going at each other uh, in a low key sort of understated, but still ultimately like, you know, volatile and then begrudgingly respected kind of way. Very much because they both think they're so cool. And yeah. in real life, the actors are cool guys, but they're, they act like, like, like uh, school children several times throughout the movie. And, um, but this movie was my entry point to Tom Waits. It's what made me, uh, uh like uh get really into his music uh uh at a younger age and uh this movie you know you just watch it and it is it is the tom waits performance where he is closest to himself in real life in not life. you don't think ram Stoker's dracula you don't think his history men uh i think it's close but i think like like young tom waits with the fedora and yeah. you know the, the the suspenders cast aside like that's uh, that's the Tom Waits I, I I think of when I when I listen to his music. 
I mean, hilariously, and, young Tom Waits was a guy that was trying to look very old. Like a young Tom Waits, he was trying to look like he was 55, minimum. But he's so good at, like, when you listen to his music, too, he does some spoken word uh, songs that are really, no, really I, great. I grew up with his music. I used to think that he was a troll that my parents listened to, uh -huh. like a wizard. Because they listen to her, uh, him, and they listen to Laurie Anderson, and they listen to Stephen King books on tape, and that's why I am the way I am. Uh, because that's the only, or in like Doctor Demento, uh, you know, uh, cassette tapes. That's what we listen to across all like our holidays, across all our trips. And I used to just be like, who is this demon that is constantly flying? Because he just sounds like way down and oh, like if you haven't listened to him do what's he building in there? It's not even a song. It's just him talking about a creepy guy who lives in a creepy house and like what is he building in there it's like, true and, yeah it's true but the, monster. <laughs> the flip side of it though is he's got like especially his early music he's got some really great music like some really Matilda? like oh my god like, um you know like the entire uh, heart of saturday night album is one of my favorites um but i mean what about the fact that Frank's Wild Years was based off of uh, Twin Peaks, I believe, although I, the Frank is a, a Blue Velvet character, but I believe it was his opera that was based off of, maybe it was Blue Velvet. Maybe that was his Blue Velvet opera. I thought it was his Twin Peaks opera. Like, it was supposed to be a, a, a operatic, like, a, a salute to David Lynch was Frank's Wild Years. It all it all feeds into each other at the end of the day, it seems. But yeah. um, I... I I, I love his early music, and I love that scene in the in the in the prison cell because it reminds me a lot of his spoken word tracks because he's like, "I'm Lee Baby Sims, <laughs> four car pileup, fifteen, <laughs> and then and then like like his song, like one of my favorite songs of his is Eggs and Sausage, mm -hmm. uh, where it's just him describing his meal at a diner in the middle, and he's like, you know, what is he like, order of fries, some kind of pies. Like he just, he's going on and on, and, and he's just eggs and sausage. Yes, and I'm really. Good. First of all, can we just give some daps in the comments for how good Adam's Tom Waits impression is? That's pretty hard to do. My, I think my favorite two of his spoken word are uh, "Step Right Up," the one he's doing the Carnival Barker thing, where he's like two for a dollar, one for a dollar, you know, like two for the show. You know, he's just doing. Mm -hmm. He's like step right up, we've got blah 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 blah, and he's just like, you know. You know, simp like a sympathetic. Oh, I'm gonna try to say the words. He's saying <laughs> words very fast, and he's just doing a carnival barker thing about like the items that he has for sale. Right, 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 right. Uh, he was also very good in the uh, the the whatever the Doctor Parnassus movie, Doctor Parnassium, whatever that. Was oh, called, the Imaginarium. Yeah. yeah. The Terry Imaginarium, Gilliam film. The Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus is that right? That's that right. is correct. Yes. Getting confused with the Dustin Hoffman movie. He's very good as the devil in that. And I just, that created a whole thing with me. I was like, he should just play Satan a lot of times. So you could, he should have been on American Gods. Uh, Absolutely. That and if you, you've heard uh, What's He Building in There, right? That is, yes. The, it's the scariest non song I've ever heard. It's not a song, it's just a scary story read by like a very scary voice. Used to scare the hell out of me as a kid. And um, he's really good at that. He's really good. And he's also really good. Yeah, like songs like Hold On, I think, is like one of the best love songs. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, it's up there with like a couple of the Bob Dylan love songs. It's just like the most iconic things for me, for my childhood. Yeah. Hold On, I Hope That I Don't Fall in Love With You is another iconic oh, one of his. That's really, really great. Um, yeah. Heart of Saturday Night, the title track from that album is is absolutely wonderful. Old 55 is a Do really you, wonderful ballad. 
do you remember that time that Scarlett Johansson decided that she was going to do an entire album of Tom Waits songs? She didn't follow through, or did? No, she did. did. No, she did. Okay. Uh, he has this whole album of Scarlett Johansson, I believe, no. singing Tom Waits songs. I think it's called Alice, or no, Alice was one of his. But uh, I think this happened. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this happened. Let's see. Uh, no, I, 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 I think I think you're right. Yeah, I remember that now. That that sucks. I I I I wasn't interested in that album. Yeah, it was four songs written by Tom Waits, uh, and then his like the rest by his wife. Um, and critics were mixed on it, surprisingly. Mm. Surprisingly, critics weren't sure about how they felt about Scarlett Johansson covering specifically Tom Waits, but I'll tell you something. It's not the worst, like, it's a, it's the most bizarre thing I've ever heard, but it's like, I gotta give credit to Scarlett Johansson for really liking Tom Waits songs. Like, I think the more we can boost the signal about Tom Waits being, like, one of the greatest, probably, songwriters out there, uh in terms of a certain kind of soulfulness and weirdness and just quirkiness i think is great anytime you can do that i don't disagree with that and when i when i when i uh kind of uh bluntly said that sucks i was really just thinking out loud because i was oh, like, no, 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 they, it did I, suck it's terrible at it because <laughs> she's she's a she can sing you know for the most part and all that but i just yeah i mean if i if i'm here i want to hear your tongue yeah, That's I mean, all. you don't listen to Tom Waits' song. I mean, there's great covers of Tom Waits' songs and there's songs he's covered that have... Yeah, I'm not, I don't think he created Waltz and Matilda, or did, maybe he did, but, like, uh, Waltz and Matilda's been covered a bunch of times. Way down the hole, I can only hear is Tom Waits, but I've heard it covered elsewhere, like, on soundtracks and stuff. Uh, but I feel like, yeah, for Tom Waits' songs, you should have a gravelly voice like Tom Waits, or you should be able to do something with it besides, like, sing pretty. It's, like, it's not... These aren't, like beautiful lilting songs a lot of times and the ones that are are like made be beautiful because of his gravel like the piano has been drinking and mm -hmm. you know but anyway i think i think talking about tom waits music is a great way to wrap up this this episode so adam i want to yeah. thank you again for for coming on and just doing another hour long hour and a half long just gab sesh with me oh uh, my pleasure my pleasure thank you for watching down by law and supporting my decision to share it with uh uh, uh hopefully some people haven't seen it I would do the same for you and recommend a movie, but I don't think there's anything that you haven't seen that I've seen. Maybe if you haven't seen uh, I, I Can See You, which is that the first one by Graham Resnick. You should check that out. It's a horror movie. Uh, okay. The Woods of Delaware, but it's very, it's got a very lynching feel to it. I remember it came with 3D glasses because he had a short beforehand that was in 3D. It's very mm -hmm. cool. Um, yeah, do you have anything you want, do you want to be plugging right now? Um... I, not plugging necessarily, just, um, you know, like I said the other night, um, you know, uh, keeping people go out and watch that horror match. I'm sure anyone who's watching yeah. the show now has already seen it, but trying to, to put out the good word for that. That was a um, great match. That was a great match. <laughs> and I think we could have more. I think, I think, I think there's, I think there's an appetite for it. I, I don't even understand the argument that there's not, like I see people in the, like the groups in the comment section being like, well, there's nothing like, you can't say horror is more popular than Star Wars. And you're like, yeah, you can't say like science fiction is more popular than Star Wars. You can't say like a genre is more popular than an IP. That's kind of the whole point of why they never gamble on taking movies outside of like IPs. Right. Because like, right. you don't want to watch a new thing. But horror is special, and I think it's self-explanatory. Um, I think I think the the presiding argument stands for itself that you know it is the origination of uh, fandom in a lot of ways, 
And, um, you know, especially thanks- this, this nerddom fan, like the, the intense gatekeeping ish, just, you know, like just it's, it's a cult thing full of like people who feel left out of other larger mainstream conversations. And yeah, I agree with you. And I think it's a way that even though the core audience of the Schmodown might be saying, yeah, but you know, IG and star Wars draws in a lot of mainstream fans. And I agree with that. And I like both of those divisions. But I think what horror could do, in theory, is eventually uh, we end up getting our matches uh, posted on uh, in a bloody disgusting or Dread Central article or Fangoria or things like that. I mean, Phil Nobert Jr. and I talk a lot of times on Twitter. Like, you could, we've brought directors in and we've brought, I think, Ash and the Evil Dead cast in to do a Halloween exhibition match. Right. The horror community is one of those communities. Like, that's what I'm talking about. I think specifically because I like horror movies, that's why the people who like make them are so around because they're just like the most accessible to their audience because they come from that place of horror movie directors are for the most part horror movie fans who are for the most part big geeks who want to talk about like their love of the genre exactly and i would love to see more of that i'd love to see a return to what they did with the the uh ash versus evil dead match that was fantastic yeah i mean i i would i need to go check out shutter's new thing i saw recently i saw the one that um i saw the movie that i knew that uh clark wolf was in uh what was it uh satan's panic i think it was satanic panic Satanic panic and i was watching and i was like this reminds me of a grady hendrix novel who i think is one of the best living horror writers we have today outside of king uh if you haven't read his books oh my god maybe that's why i recommend you there you go Read Horror Store. It's spelled like uh, with an umlaut over the O and no E because it is uh, takes place in a haunted IKEA. You should read. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what's the new one he has coming out this summer? It's called Final Girls, and it's about a, a support. I've heard of that one. Yeah, and he did my best friend's Exorcism, uh, which I think has gotten picked up for development. He is right. such a good voice for, uh, such a good ear for uh, female characters, especially female character protagonists of like a certain age. Like he, a lot of his uh, protagonists and other books of his have been in their like mid to late forties or like, you know, just, just women who are not like the hot teenager. And I think that's what final girls is going to be too. And I just think that's like so cool, but I was watching this movie and I was like, this seems like a Grady Hendrix book. And then I read the, as soon as it was over, I saw the cast, I mean, and crew and it was the writer was Grady, Grady, Grady Hendrix. So check out his work. I think you'd really enjoy it, Adam. I, I, I will prioritize that happily. Well, because yeah, soon it's going to be a movie. Like all his stuff is getting picked up for development. So check it out. Um, <laughs> as for me, I you know I have my own stuff to plug. Let's see, I do this uh, every week with Alex Mack usually, but I've loved having Adam here. It's had a totally different vibe uh, to it with Adam here. Um, so I do this. I don't know what next week's movie is because me and Alex haven't gotten uh, together on that, but I'm sure it'll be something fun. I think it's her pick. Mondays and Thursdays we do the Video Chronic Pop Culture Quiz. That's at 8 p.m. Um, again, Thursday we're doing something. TBD, keep it in, keep it in your mind. And then Sundays I do live in the dark with Video Drew, which Adam has just also been on. At this point, Adam's just like this extended Easter egg of of, of reoccurring appearances that I'd like to keep going uh, <laughs> on this channel. Um, otherwise, please check out the Patreon, Patreon.com/backslash/VideoDrew, where you can sign up and do fun things like come on this show, uh, come to the study sessions I do twice a week that are just like cool, casual hangouts. They aren't the intense study sessions uh that i think can happen sometimes so i mean and which are great i'm not trying to say that they aren't but this these are more general relaxed cross-factional everyone who wants to come along is is always more than welcome because we're just here to have a good time uh and 
yeah, some other perks. So go check that out. And I think that's that's all for me, folks. Um, thank you guys so much for, for being here. And I will see you next time. Uh, thank you, Adam. Pleasure. Okay, let's see. Boop. <laughs>